if you're new to Ecclesiastes, um, there's a king, I believe it's Solomon, who sets out to determine how to live a good life apart from God. And so first he tries the academic route and he studies and he learns all kinds of stuff and that doesn't do it for him. He gets a PhD in everything. He goes, that didn't do it. So then in chapter two, he switches gears and he says, okay, from now on, heart, I'm not gonna say no to you. I, I'm not gonna say no to you. Whatever you want, you can have it. And so he starts to go lowbrow partying. Just get smashed, wake up in your own puke, missing your wallet, wondering where you're at. He tires of that. So then he starts to just build stuff and make stuff and go for it in achievement. That doesn't do it. So then he lives a life of ease. Slaves to do everything for him. That doesn't do it. So then he goes for the ladies and gets a thousand of them. And that doesn't do it. And so now where we're at is Solomon has lived that probably 20, 25 years. And he's now reflecting back on what has happened in his life, how he has looked at living life without God, finding nothing in it and how he's feeling. And so we pick it up in verse 18. And we did this on Sunday. I'll just do a quick recap. I hated all my toil. This is Ecclesiastes 2.18. In which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. He was as wealthy as anyone you can imagine today. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity, or I would say enigma. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. <laughs> this is vanity and a great evil. I love that. <laughs> what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils under the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Sunday, we looked at this. I won't try to cover that same thing. Uh, to Solomon, work is a four-letter word. That's where he gets to right here. And this is his big problem when you read this. I work, I toil, I sweat, I save. Hey, one side note. If you drive a black Subaru, I just saw it on my hand. It's li the lights are on. <laughs> the license plate is 390JUT. It's just a dome light. So you have a little bit of a gamble. Will it make it or not? So if that's you, I'm sorry that I did it right in the middle of my message, but I felt like I should. I don't want all your work and toil to be vanity as you go out to your car. Okay, so all this work, 
all his toil, all the way he saved and scrimped and did this, he can't enjoy it. He dies. There's a yard sale where everything that he worked for is put up for sale and some unemployed guy buys his TV and his lazy boy and his Blu-ray DVD player and sits at his house getting a government check enjoying all of his labors. And he goes, oh, it's an enigma. Oh, I don't like that. He gets mad, right? Someone else is enjoying all his hard work. And the worst part of it is actually, he says, it may be my son. My son might be the fool that gets all my stuff and blows it. I don't know if Saul was prophetic because that's exactly what his son does. So he has a son who is a fool and destroys the nation of Israel. It's divided. He loses everything. And Solomon is exactly right. This little thing, rich dads, foolish sons, is repeated over and over in history. Do you know that? Just look at the history of people that are born rich. They work, or they're born poor. They work super hard. They get rich, and then they give an inheritance to their kids. You want to read a, or watch a very interesting documentary on this? It's Rich Kids. No, Born Rich, excuse me. And Born Rich is like the heir to the Johnson & Johnson, whatever it is, you know, billions and billions. It's the two Hilton sisters. It's Vanderbilt. It's, it's old money being passed on. And how does it affect these kids? Fascinating documentary. Like all of them go south. They just go crazy, drugs, just you name it. Bad, 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 bad stuff. My favorite though was with this one dad. I think he was like Vanderbilt or something really, really wealthy. He was giving his son, his son was going to Harvard. Shouldn't have got into Harvard, but if you got money, you get into Harvard. He's going to Harvard. He, every year was given a $1 million allowance while he's going to college. Not eating top ramen and potatoes like me. Right? <laughs> so he's got $1 million every month, 100 grand's in his checking account. So he's living large and he lived large, partied crazy. And his dad said, that's it. Took him out of school, sent him down to a friend who had a giant ranch in Texas and made him work as a, a day laborer with other migrant workers for a year. That son was interviewed on that, in that documentary. He said, that was the best thing that ever happened to me. To this day, he still gets the massive allowance every year and he still works a minimum wage job because he says, I need it. So fascinating. The other kids didn't have that. They go crazy because very often a dad will work his tail off, be very rich, sit, give it to his son and then the son's a fool. So if you've been reading about this stuff, Bill Gates, who's today worth $89 million, he said this, my children are getting a minuscule amount of my money. Now, I don't know what a minuscule amount of 89 billion is, but I'll take it. <laughs> but he said this, he said, because the reason he gave was they need to find their own way and it's no favor to them if I give them this money. It will ruin them and they'll take the wrong path. He's a fascinating dude. He's been going to church lately. Really interesting guy. So he's like, I'm not doing it. Gonna ruin him, not doing it. Following in his footsteps, Mark Zuckerberg, who's worth 45 billion, said he and his wife have agreed, our daughter will get none of it. We're not gonna give it to her because it will ruin her, right? Warren Buffett, same thing. I'm not giving my kids my money, right? And then 
Chuck Feeney, has anyone heard of him? He came up with duty-free shopping. So it's duty-free, but it ain't free. He's made, he was worth $8 billion. He's been spending it and giving it away. Today he's worth 2 million. And he said to his kids, not a dime. You will not get it. By the time I'm dead, this 2 million will be gone. So there's some people that are figuring it out. Like it doesn't help. Solomon saw it coming, didn't do anything about it. And it actually happened. Dads, if you have daughters and sons, learn from this lesson. Very often, we, maybe you grew up in a different kind of way. It was harder, it was difficult, you were poor, whatever. And so you're looking at your son and your daughter and you're saying, I don't want them to go through the same things that I went through. So I wanna make it easier for them. But it was those difficulties and it was that suffering that was the crucible that created in you character and virtue, all the stuff that really makes you able to do what you're supposed to do. And without it, you actually hurt your kids which is what these very rich people are figuring out. It's like Ronald Melzack, who did these experiments on terrier puppies. Have you heard about him? Okay, so he took these terrier puppies and when they were born, he isolated them in these very like cushioned environments. They didn't get to wrestle with other puppies and bite and nip at each other. None of that. Everything was padded. They didn't encounter a single harsh thing till they were six months old. And then he took them out and looked at what they would do. And they had the total improper response to pain. They'd put their nose into a candle and not pull it out and their nose would burn off. They, they couldn't, like you would poke them with a pin or a needle, they wouldn't feel it. Like the normal rough and tumble of, you know, nipping at each other and having a mom nip at them and uh, brothers nip at them and all that stuff, because it wasn't there, it actually ruined them and they were never able to enjoy a life. I think the same thing is true about our kids sometimes. We gotta let them go through the rough and tumble of life and not try to comfort it too much. I tell my kids this, I probably repeated it a hundred times to them. Hard is not bad. Hard's not bad. Just because it's hard right now does not mean it's bad. Pressure and heat create diamonds. Sometimes we need some pressure and some heat. We are, as a country right now, considering universal wage, right? If you've seen that, it's, it's very much a current topic that every citizen of the United States should be given a certain amount of money every single year. I think that would ruin people, just destroy them. That work has this really great purpose. The wealthiest people in the world are saying, I'm not doing that to my kids. The people that are really movers and shakers, nah, no way, no way. So Solomon here is given a little bit of wisdom. Be very careful with money. It can get you everywhere but heaven. And it can buy you anything but happiness. Be really careful with money. The two things that matter the most, money can't do it. So then he launches into this little things he'll do quite often. We'll see them over and over in this book. So now he's evaluated that, he's given his opinion on it, and now he says, I'm gonna apply this. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, 
God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after wind. You will see from time to time, this little kind of thing tucked in over and over. These, there's nothing better, or here's what I think you should do, or he'll do it a number of times in Ecclesiastes. So what he says is this. It's kind of a glint of hope, if you would. Verse 24, he says, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. That's a really tough little phrase to actually translate, enjoyment in his toil. I think a better translation is this. Make his soul see that work is good. I think that's the best translation. If you have a Bible with notes, it'll probably have that underneath there. That there is a perspective. Remember this, all about work. He's looked at work. He's saying, I hate work. But then right here, he says, here's what you have to do. You have to make your soul see that work is good. Huge to me. Because so much of life is simply perspective. Isn't it? It's your perspective. So Myron, my son, five-year-old, he's learning how to play speed. You ever played speed where you like have to put the cards down really fast? The older you get, the worse you are at speed. Like I need glasses because I can't even see the cards that fast now with some of my kids. I'm like, ah, I got like two cards down. They got 20. It's really embarrassing. So Myron, we're, we're playing and uh, I'm playing with Elijah, who's my 11-year-old and Myron, my five-year-old and me. And um, I was talking to them about being good losers. How important it is to be a good loser. <laughs> and Myron looks at me and goes, yeah, but dad, I am a great winner. I just cracked up. That's easy, my friend. That's why most people are good, great winners. The key is you gotta be a great loser. His perspective, I'm a great winner. It doesn't really matter. Life is perspective. Let me read for you a little text that for me is a driving factor in how you're supposed to live your life as a believer. It's Romans chapter eight, which if you know the Bible is a, the Everest of Romans, it builds up to that really. Listen to what it says. Verse five, Romans eight. For those who live according to the flesh, this is the key, set their minds on the things of the flesh. Perspective. What are they focusing on? What are they thinking about? things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. The argument there, and it's really this long, long, long argument that Paul now is just saying, here it is. It's what you set your mind on. And chapter is all about the spirit life. So what are spiritual activities? If we were to name them. Prayer, 
giving, fasting. How about those three? Because Jesus gives those three in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't he? The big three, I think. Prayer, giving, fasting. And what does he say about those three? He says, done the wrong way, they're bad, right? He says, if you pray like the hypocrites who want everybody to hear them pray, nothing. If you give like the hypocrites who want everybody to know, look how much I'm giving, you get nothing. If you fast and you suck in your cheeks and you, you're all filthy and dirty and you don't bathe yourself and you're walking around going, oh, I'm so hungry. Why are you hungry? Because I'm fasting. You get nothing, right? Good things done the wrong way are bad is what Jesus is saying right there. That they're not actually spiritual then, right? So if I know somebody's coming into my room or into my study or in somewhere. And so I start praying, oh, Jesus, I just pray pray you bless Mark Scud's dad. Oh, and I pray that you, oh, hey, Mark, how you doing? Didn't know you were there. Am I getting a reward for that? No, it's all words, no heart. I'm trying to impress him. Praying Praying for you like I always do. Every day I pray for you at this hour, right? Or if I know you're coming in, so I make sure I'm reading the Bible right when you come in. Oh, hey, just soak in the scripture, man. How shall a young man cleanse his ways? Taking heed to God's word. That's what I'm doing right now. And I do that because I know you're coming. No reward. It's not spiritual at all. Why? Because I've set my mind on the flesh. I'm trying to get something from you. Approval. Trying to make you like me. Fleshly stuff. Right? I think that some of the most spiritual things in the world can be the mundane. Done for the right reasons. Work can be the most spiritual thing in the world. If you say, Jesus, thank you for this job. Thank you that I can go today and I can earn a living and I can support my kids and pay my rent and have food on the table. Thank you, Jesus, for doing that. Thank you for giving me the abilities to work. Thank you for giving me health today. Man, that's the most spiritual thing you could do. And you go to work and you do Colossians 3.17. You work heartily as unto the Lord. That you look at your boss like he's Jesus. Matt, my boss is not Jesus Christ. In fact, I'm pretty sure he's the antichrist, okay? Even better, man, work harder for him. Show him, demonstrate that. That to me is spiritual. You can look at the dishes as fleshly or spiritual. Oh, I have to do the dishes again. Oh, or praise God that we had food to dirty up some dishes. God, you have supplied all my needs according to your riches and glory. Then it's spiritual. It's all about perspective. That's what he's saying here, right? You have to tell yourself, today I'm going to work and it's a good thing. And it becomes spiritual and beautiful and good. And you have to convince your own soul of that, right? If you don't, look out. If you're negative about work, guess what work will be to you? Fleshly and negative, that's what it'll be. It's like this story, my old boss at, met one used to say, I probably heard him tell it a dozen times. And it was always to engineers because engineers tend to be this way. He said, when he was young, he was like 25. He bought this bull taco motorcycle and he kept wrecking it. So he went into the place that he bought it, wanted to talk to the owner and the owner's son was there instead. And he was like 16 years old, you know, his name was Philly Consilis. I guess he ends up being a really good racer later. But Tom, my boss didn't know that. He just sees this little kid there. He's like, hey, where's your dad? He's not here. Oh, what do you need? He goes, well, I keep wrecking this motorcycle. So this 
16-year-old kid said, well, how do you, why do you wreck it? He goes, well, I'll be driving down these dirt roads, you know, going really fast, and there'll be a rock in the road, and I always hit the rock. And so this kid just said, stop looking at the rock, and you'll go right around it. So Tom's like, hmm, okay. Goes out the next time, tries it, and goes right on the rock. And that was his illustration, because engineers always look at the rock, don't they? Always look at why you can't do something. Always look at the problem. He's like, stop looking at the problem. You go right around it. Works the same way. If you're constantly looking at the rock and what's wrong with work, guess what you'll do? You'll wreck every time. Work will become miserable and it'll be a grind and you'll hate it. You have to convince your soul, I'm not looking at the rock anymore. I'm gonna look at this spiritually. Jesus, thank you for the job. Thank you that I can work. Thank you to have abilities. Thank you. And then you go right around the rock and you hit a home run. And there's no sacred secular divide in the Bible. Everything can be either secular, fleshly, or spiritual for the most part. And you can choose to tell your soul, verse 24, work is good. And then he says this, this I saw was from the hand of God. When you do that, man, to me, you're glorifying God. God today, thank you for this job. And then secondly, little wisdom here, He says this, verse 25 is a keeper. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Solomon says this, the source of enjoyment, the source of all that's good, the source of joy is guess who? God. He is, if you would, the secret ingredient. So do you like chips and salsa? I love chips and fresh salsa. Like it's one of my favorite things in the world to eat. I'll just eat and eat and eat and eat chips and salsa. So a number of years ago, um, it was after a Rogue Bowl church service. We had a bunch of kind of family with us and we all went to Tacos Locos. But I got there late because we were tearing down church and all that kind of stuff. So I get there late. And um, because there's so many adults, the whole adult table was filled and there was only one chair left with all the kids. And there was like a dozen children under 12. So I joined with them. I fit right in, you know, just my crew. So we're there and I love to do this with chips. I love to take a chip, put a little salt on it, dip it in the salsa and eat it. It's divine. So I'm doing that. And then guess what all the kids do, right? They're all doing the same thing. And then experimentation comes. Pepper, how's pepper on it? How's Splenda on it? How's sugar on it? How's creamer on it, right? And then the kids started experimenting as well. So it was fun. So we had a great time, right? Here's what we never said. We never said, man, that's good salt, right? No, it's good chips and salsa. But have you ever had a chip without salt on it? It's like, you know, medieval torture. They're the grossest thing in the world. The, the thing that makes a chip good is just the right amount of salt. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. That's what Solomon's saying. It's God. He's the one that makes your chips enjoyable. He's the salt, right? He's it. He's the one that brings pleasure and happiness. He is the source of all that. So Matt, are you saying that people that don't believe in God are miserable? Oh, no way. Jesus says, Matthew 5, 44, my father, makes it rain on the just and the unjust. He makes the sun rise on the righteous and the unrighteous. It's called common grace. But the source of all that's good and all that's great is him. 
The problem though with unbelievers is this, they then try to get all their joy from that one thing and they end up strangling and ruining chips and salsa because it can't, can't fulfill them that way. And so then they end up just moving from the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, searching for the real source and never finding it. And that's why he says it's vanity and striving for the wind, okay? So this is why this is so important. There is a way to preach the Bible, and maybe you've been in churches like this, that turn God into a cosmic killjoy that hates pleasure, that looks out and like is waiting to make you miserable. What? Is somebody laughing? Smite them, right? You will be miserable. You will homeschool your kids, all of them. You will never watch TV. You will make sure and never eat good food. You'll have no salt on any of your chips. You will eat kale only. And if you don't, hell for you, right? So then what happens to you when that is preached is when you go to enjoy yourself, what happens? You feel super guilty. Like, oh man, I went snowboarding. I should have gone door-to-door witnessing. I'm such a miserable Christian, Uh, right? Because there's this idea about God that he hates joy. The Bible presents a very different God. He is the author of everything that's good. And let me read for you a C.S. Lewis quote. I think it's been like, I checked. It's been like five years since I read it. It's so money though. Man, it's so good. Listen to this, what he says about joy. This is the wrong one. Man. Vanity of vanities. (laughs) Okay, here's the right one. Okay, quote. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics, and is not a part of the Christian faith. Do you guys know Immanuel Kant? I've mentioned him before. He's a guy that says, duty is king. And my illustration is always, he would say, if a man sticks with his wife out of pure duty, so you ask him like, hey bro, how's your marriage? Whew. To be honest with you, bro, that woman sucks the life out of me, but I gave my word 20 years ago and for the rest of my long, long life, I'm in. Kant would say, that's better than the dude that's like, I am so ravished with her. She is better looking to me. I love her more than I've ever loved her before. He would say, the first dude is more noble because he do, he's doing it out of pure duty. That was Kant. So that's what Lewis is saying. That idea is weird. I agree. Okay. So (laughs) indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. 
like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I love that quote. It is not wrong to seek your own joy. I think like any dad, it brings God pleasure to see his kids laughing and loving life. And so what Solomon says right here in this little glimpse of hope, this little, hey, listen, apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment, right? So he's saying, I'm starting to learn something. I looked at all my jobs. I looked at this and I'm learning that the source of what joy is and the source of what is fun and pleasurable, it comes from one place. It comes from God alone. So this idea of trying to find it under the sun is starting to break apart in Solomon's mind. It's actually from God. So if you want the good life, you gotta go to God. Now, some would argue then, Matt, that doesn't seem right. If God is the source of all that's good, I see a lot of bad things. Why is that? Chapter three, look at this. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silent and a time to speak. I love that, that was perfect, thank you. A time to love and a time to hate a time for war and a time for peace. The birds made a song out of this. I'd sing it for you, but then I'd ruin it forever. So I won't, right? It's a great song, wonderful. But what Solomon is actually saying is very different from the song. What he's saying is this, there's a tide, an ebb and flow to life, right? That you and I can never control. You're not stopping the tide. It's gonna do what it's gonna do. Well, there's an ebb and a flow to life, back and forth between these like diametrically opposed things, born and death, right? There's this ebb and flow between them that it doesn't matter how great you are, you're not gonna control them. You're not gonna stop them, right? Even though you might prefer one or the other, right? Like the list, a time to be born, a time to die. Which would you prefer? Yeah, right? No one, no one wants to, die, right? Google's trying to figure out how to stop it right now. They won't, but man, they're pouring billions into it. We're going to stop death. A time to plant, time to pluck up. Do you like to plant stuff or do you like to weed? All right, you like to plant. I'm not talking about um, weeds. Do you like to take care of weeds or do you like to plant, right? Most people, I like to plant. Kill or heal. Man, I'd prefer healing somebody every day, right? Break down stuff or build up build up. Do you like to weep or do you like to laugh? 
I prefer laughter. Thank you very much. I want a comedy, man. I don't want to cry all the time, right? A time to mourn, a time to dance. Would you rather mourn or dance, right? I love to dance. It makes my kids laugh. It's time for them to laugh, but I love to dance, right? All right, so you just go down this, right? A time to seek, a time to lose. Do you like losing things? Is it like fun? Like, man, I'm so glad I lost my wallet today. Praise God, can't find my keys. No, no one likes losing stuff, right? Time to keep silent, a time to say, do you like people not to listen to you? Hey, shut up. You like hearing that? No, you want to speak your mind. You want, right? So he's saying there's this ebb and flow to life of these diametrically opposed things. And guess what? You're not stopping it. It's coming for you. Both of them, at some point, you will be born and you will die. There'll be times that you can plant and it's awesome. And there's times you have to go out there and weed. There are times that you're gonna mourn over something. There's gonna be times that you are laughing and loving and enjoying, but both are coming for you and for me. We're not going to stop it, period, right? That's what it's saying. You don't get to decide when or how these things are coming for you, right? It's a cool tune, but very depressing lyrics. But the key is this, this little word in the beginning, for everything there is a season. It's a season. And the thing about seasons is this, you can prep for them, right? It's foolish to go out in a blizzard unprepared, right? You're gonna get a time to die. That's what's gonna happen to you. But if you prepare for it, hey, it's not such a bad season. And if you know this, hey, these things are coming at some point for me. So I should live a kind of life that prepares me so that I'm not caught off guard. Like, are you ready for everything in this little phrase? And it just about covers life right there. Are you ready? You can be. I think there's ways to be ready for any one of those events. Biblically, strengthened. And the other thing about a season is this, spring's coming, right? If you're in winter, it's a season. And pretty soon this will pass and a new season will come and then you're gonna get out of it and it's better. It's not always gonna be that way. It's not always gonna, the season will go away. And what Solomon is saying is real wise here. There's a complexity to life that you and I cannot change. And you, the only thing that you can do when it comes to the complexity of life is say, I better have the right gear. I better be geared up. I don't wanna be in a blizzard in Bermuda shorts because that would be unwise. And so he's saying, be ready. Seasons are coming for both of all of us, both sides, good and bad, Okay. And if you believe you can stop this, there's no way. And there's interesting to me, there's always these books written that says, you can stop it. You can make life always spring and never winter, right? Yeah, laugh, you should, right? If you believe that, I got a great real estate deal for you because it's foolish. There's no such thing. All these are coming for us. Are you ready for them? They're coming. There will be a season for each of these things. So here's what he says then, and I'll be done. Verse nine through 13. What gain has the worker from his toil? He's still talking work here. He's still just evaluating this. He's just churning up in his mind, work. I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, 
yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there was nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So he's building on his last, nothing better, a little bit. Okay. So Philip Yancey, if you haven't read him, he is one of my favorite authors, no doubt. He has this illustration, been stolen a million times, I'm gonna steal it again, about making a cake, making a lemon cake. And he says this, hey, if you took just the ingredients, the individual ingredients by themselves are not that good. Like anyone sitting down in the morning and just pouring themselves a big bowl of flour, like, oh, man, that's so good, huh? No, or a big bowl of sugar, my kids would, but most people would not, that wouldn't be that good. Or just a lemon, just a lemon in your mouth. Or just cracking six eggs into a cup and going Rocky Balboa and drinking that, right? No, most of us don't do that. Or just, just pure baking soda. I love a big teaspoon of baking soda, man. Best day of my life. No, right? Those ingredients by themselves are like, ah! But if you've got a great chef and he knows just the right amount of flour and sugar and lemon and egg, and baking soda, and knows how to put it in the right time, mix it up, and then put it in just the right amount of heat for just the perfect amount of time, what do you make? Lemon cake. And ooh, that's good. And his analogy is this, that's life. Life is flour, and eggs, sugar, baking soda, bummer times. But if you trust the chef, you trust that he knows how, the right time for it, that he'll make everything beautiful in his time. If you trust the chef, man, what comes out is brilliant and amazing and great. Because it's just a season. And we gotta trust the seasons. And more of that, we gotta trust the chef. That he knows exactly the time for each of those things to make you and me beautiful in our time. Okay. If you've ever planted trees, you know that. Like I remember 15 years ago, I decided to plant some fruit trees and I went to Redwood nursery and I like picked out the best ones, like the bushiest best ones. And they're like 25 bucks back then. I don't know how much they are now, but I bought like 10 of them. So it was like 250 bucks. And I was really proud. I'm going to show charity these beautiful trees I bought. And the person I bought them from said, would you like the owner to prune these? I said, yeah, let's have him prune them. He just made them sticks. And then they like had a couple little blossoms left on them. He snatched off those blossoms. I'm like, why did you ruin my trees? And he said, you need to do this for the next three years so that these trees concentrate on roots and nothing else. Because if they have strong roots, then you'll get great fruit. But you got three years of nothing. Now, I'm not sure if he's right or not because half of them died, but that may have been my fault. <laughs> but the ones that did live produced some good fruit. There are seasons where it's, hey, there's no blossoms and it just feels like the pruner's taking everything off of you. But if you trust the pruner, John 15, where Jesus says, trust me, because I'm gonna prune you so that you produce fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. If you trust the pruner, if you trust the chef, if you trust that he'll make everything beautiful in his time, something happens in you 
And whether it's joy or sorrow, there's like this resonating in you with this eternity that you know, hey, good things are coming. It resonates, doesn't matter joy or sorrow. Doesn't matter born or death. It's like this resonating inside of you, eternity, eternity. God's making this beautiful in his time. This is the crucible that he requires. It like reminds you these things do, these seasons. And so we're in a little bit of a season right now. My wife's grandma Margot passed away on Sunday night. Beautiful, incredible woman. 93 long years, great. She moved to eternity, it's awesome. Uh, She's not upset right now. Cake is finished and it's gorgeous and beautiful and right. But it just, it stirs in you all this. Like there's a, there's like, it's a season where you just feel it. So I grabbed the kids on Monday and took them up to Shasta to get them away. We went snowboarding, skiing. I taught Myron how to ski. He's my five-year-old for the first time, super fun. And I'm with Myron and Myron of all the kids, probably closest to grandma, Margo. Uh, he's named after her dad, Myron Oliver. So she just like was, loves him. Uh, we have a video of him on Saturday and he brought down his little Bob book and he's sitting right next to grandma Margo in her bed and he's reading his Bob book to her. It's like the most precious thing in the world. He got all my wife and none of me, praise God. So he has great, there's great future for him. So he's just really close with her. So as we're going up the ski lift, he's like asking questions, you know, how kids do like, where is grandma Margo? What's happening with her? And, and I'm trying to explain it. And at the same time, you know how kids are, they're like, they're like, hey, death in one sentence. And then like something completely random in the next sentence. So he's doing that. We're like going up this chair. He's asking about Margo and I'm trying to explain it to him. Like really like, how do I explain this? Well, he's like 45, 46, 47. I'm like, what are you doing? Counting the chairs, dad? I'm like, what? I was just explaining like death and what's important. You're like counting these things, right? So yeah, just kids, they're awesome. Uh, they put you in your place for sure. And he came this way. It was like, he, it, it went like, Chair 144 to chair one. You know, it, it like we looped around, if you would. So we're watching. He's like, Dad, it goes 144 to one. These guys can't count at this place, Dad. What's wrong with them? So I'm trying to explain to him, like, well, son, it's like, you know, the, the, you just reached the end and you're starting over in the beginning, right? You know? And, and he's like, oh, like Grandma Margot? I'm like, yeah, like Grandma Margot. She ended here but it's not the end. And she started over. She's at one now. So grandma Margo's one year old. I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> not exactly. <laughs> I'm gonna screw my kid all up. He'd be like, what in the world are you talking? Grandma Margo's one. So yeah, but it's like that, you know? And you have these seasons where you're in this and you just feel eternity like never before. You just feel them. That God plucks the strings of eternity and it resonates in a way. And you trust He, he is the pruner. He's the baker. And he's gonna make everything, I have that circled. He's gonna make everything beautiful in its time. That's what he's doing. And there's a mystery to it. That's why it ends by saying this, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Listen, you and I aren't gonna figure it all out. And the quicker you come to that conclusion, the better life is that there's a mystery. There's all kinds of mysteries that I just have. I have files in my head that I don't know. I don't know, but I'm okay with that. You know why? 
because I trust the pruner and the chef. He's my answer. I know Jesus, I know him, and that's what matters. And that's what I trust. I don't have to have all the answers to everything. Like I used to just, gotta have all these answers. There's a lot of mystery, but it's okay because I know the pruner. And so then he just says this. Here's what you're supposed to do. Be joyful, right? Enjoy yourself. How? Well, do good. Go out and do good. Love your neighbor. Be kind. Smile. Tell people thank you. Tell people they're awesome. Compliment. Just everywhere you go, do good. When you do that, what happens in your soul? Man, isn't there a resonating? Right? It's because it's, it's godly. Like you feel that, ah, oh, yeah, right? Also, that everyone should eat and drink. Go have really good meals. I think it's very godly to eat great food. Amen, someone said. <laughs> Absolutely, no guilt at all. Eat great food. What's so sad is this. Most of us eat way too much food in our car that was designed by a clown and cooked by a 16-year-old. And it's not good food, right? So there's not enjoyment in it. It's like, oh, what am I doing to myself? Ah, bleh. You need to go over to somebody's house who is a great chef. And what do you, what's the best thing to do when you go to somebody's house and when they're a great chef? What should you do? Should you say, you know, actually not today, I'm fasting. Should you jump in the kitchen and try to help them out? You need more salt on that, man. No, what do you do? You pig out, you belch. You're like, that was the best meal ever. That's the most glorifying thing you can do for a great chef, right? Pig out. I think that's what we're supposed to do with that. I think God is this guy that's set this spread, this, this wonderful being who said, Matt, enjoy all this. And when I do, God says, yes, my kids are enjoying themselves. They're enjoying themselves, right? Eating a great meal, drinking a big, tall glass of Coke Classic. <laughs> right? Telling stories that are this close to a fib laughing till Coke comes out of your nose. And God says, yes, my kids are enjoying themselves. Eat good meals together. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And then it says this, take pleasure in your work. Now that can mean that perspective idea. I'm gonna go there. I'm gonna look at the rock and the problems. Or it can be find a job that you love. Man, I think there's, there's no problem in saying, I want to find a job that I love. My, I had a, uh, Gary Bashirs, my theology professor said this. He said, you got to find what you love and the, what the world needs. And where those cross, that's your calling. Find something you love to do that the world needs. And where those two cross, that's your calling. And you will love what you do then. I think there's no problem in that. Find that, totally. See, this is the wisdom little part right here. This is the hope hey, you can enjoy life. But for a moment, here's what Solomon does. He brings God back into the picture. And that's what brings joy. So that's what he's doing right here. I, I, I don't wanna go 12 chapters, I think Solomon say, completely hopeless. So I'm gonna grab a little bit right here. Trust the baker. Trust that he's got all the ingredients, all the seasons that you and I need, that this world has been shaped in such a way with its joy and its sorrow, with its birth and with its death, with its mourning and with its laughing, with its weeping and its dancing. It's been shaped in such a way 
that is the crucible that creates in you and me the virtue and the character that enables us to rule and reign with him for eternity. And when you embrace that, good things happen. And when you fight it, you end up like Jonah in the belly of a whale, miserable. So I say, I'm embracing it, Lord. It doesn't matter what season I'm in, I know you will make everything beautiful in your time. I know that my wife's grandma Margot is beautiful. She's healed. She's 100%. She wouldn't want to come back. And that strikes with me, that chord of eternity. Ah, one day, me too.